Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology, with me, Tiasha Zaitz. If you took part in the Clubhouse Frenzy last year, you probably came across the Digital Health Channel and MedNet Club. Digital Health Channel, which currently has 6,400 members, was among the key digital health topics-related hubs on Clubhouse with an active schedule of discussions each week. It was founded by MD Jonathan Bringas and healthcare expert Amit Goldman. MD Diana Van Steen, who was often a speaker in the channel too, founded MedNet, a club targeted at medical professionals. While the married couple from the Netherlands, Diana Van Steen and Jonathan Bringas, are not active on Clubhouse anymore, they're continuing their pursuit of bridging the gap between medical practice and innovation. They work with Medscape and occasionally facilitate the digital health-related discussions on LinkedIn. They're the co-founders of Lapsi Health, a digital health startup that was first looking at a digital therapeutic solution for asthma in children, but is now pivoting in the space of digital biomarkers. Most of the time, however, Diana works as a clinical resident at Amsterdam UMC Hospital and Jonathan as the digital health consultant and lecturer. In today's short discussion, you're going to hear a bit more about their journey, Diana's PhD on Kawasaki disease, their perspectives on digital therapeutics and bridging the gap between academia and the industry to accelerate healthcare innovation. Let's dive in. Jonathan and Diana, welcome to Faces of Digital Health. To start uh, with a quick introduction, you're both uh, medical doctors. Diana, you actually work in clinical practice and Jonathan, you've been working mostly as a consultant and medical officer for several digital health companies. And now you also both founded a digital health startup, Lapsi Health. And um, Diana, let's start with you. I wonder, how do you see the interests of doctors um, on digital health? Because there's tons of doctors in digital health and that sometimes gives us the impression that the majority of doctors are aware of the innovation and everything that's happening on the tech side. Yeah, I completely agree. I think it's very high on the agenda. So I think everybody's very aware of all the changes that are taking place right now. But I do see that they cannot yet completely grasp because digital health is so big. And they're very much drawn right now, especially because the the COVID pandemic, they are thinking more about talent health and they don't see the broader perspective of what digital health is. So the interest is there. I do think that it is difficult because... It's, it's academia is right now mixing with technology, which already happened before, obviously, but now in a different way. And I noticed that when you're in academia, we are very much in a certain thought process. So it's difficult to, to get out of that normal thought process and see the whole perspective from a different point of view. But steps are being made, but we're not there yet. Jonathan, perhaps you can also share your opinion here because you're a lecturer. You lecture in Peru about digital health. What are your observations, given that you are spending more time on the uh, industry side? I think that doctors want to know, and that's what you're saying, that everyone is trying to catch up. And um, 
There's a lot of misinterpretation of digital health. The big majority of doctors think that digital health is just interactive telemedicine. It's basically video calls with a nice connection to the EHR. And there's a lot more in digital health. There's a lot more to gain in digital health that they sometimes don't really grasp and they don't really understand. How can I actually use information in a remote setting to, to enable remote diagnostics or therapeutics or to monitor chronic diseases and, and do secondary prevention. I think that there's a really like a quest from a lot of doctors to try to learn, to learn from it, but then there's a big gap of knowledge. There's not really a lot of places where you can find it. And the knowledge is dispersed in silos and um, small repositories of knowledge. So it makes it very difficult for a very structured mind, like a doctor's mind, to learn from that. Because you really have to be looking at several different uh, outlets where, where some pieces of information are and then put them all together. I think that there's a gap of definitely the educational part. And we we have been speaking about it with several doctors in, in the space of digital health that there should be at some point digital health or, or some basics of digital health to be taught in just in a normal general curricula of uh, medicine. In universities. Speaking of universities and education, Diana, you just got your PhD in pediatrics and now you work um, at the Amsterdam University Medical Center Hospital as a resident. Can you explain the medical trajectory of doctors in the Netherlands? What does it take to become a doctor in the Netherlands? And we can contrast that with some other countries uh, such as the US. So in the Netherlands, first, when you get into um, medical school, you Go through the medical school, you get your degree, and uh, that is already includes your uh, clinical rotations. And then you have your uh, medical degree, your general practitioner. And from there on, the original step is to go and to specialize. But because there's not many spaces for the speci specialization, it is quite difficult to get directly into that trajectory. So what you usually do is start working already in the clinic as a doctor that is not a resident. And when you gain experience, then you get the chance to apply for the residency that you would like to. But still, sometimes that in the most wanted fields is very difficult. They really require you to have a very good CV, try to do something outside of the scope, maybe of your medical degree. And they also look at PhD research, but they also look at, did you do something voluntary work or like really to build your CV to see what is your interest and to see what you're going to contribute uh, to the team. I think the U.S., you have a major that you have to have in the United States before you go to med school. So that changes things. In some countries in South America and also here in Europe, you don't need to have that before you enter medical school. So that takes some time at the beginning for the Americans, but then they go into med school and then during the residency, they do their internship. So it's not that you have to validate your cleaning skills to become a resident. It's just part of your residency. Well, in Europe, you take a little bit longer because you first have to validate your clinical skills and then sometimes they ask you for a PhD. So I would say that it takes way more time. Also specialties in general last longer in, in South America and in Europe than in the United States. For instance, pediatrics, which is what Diana is doing in, in Peru and also here in the Netherlands is around five to six years, which in other countries, it can be up to four years. What about Peru and uh, digital health, which is something that you also focus on a lot? Uh, you're also a lecturer at one of the universities. Perhaps we can start with any stereotypes or uh, misconceptions that people have about South America and digital innovation there. 
Oh my gosh, misconceptions about South America. <laughs> there's so many. There, there's a lot of misconception about South America in, in general as a continent. The type of people that are there, the way of life that they have. You can hear so many opinions coming from the US or Europe about what South America is. But South America has had a really good and interesting jump or, or during the COVID pandemic towards digital health implementation. Not only South America, also Central America and part of North America, which is Mexico. They all have had this, this jump. Now, some countries were, of course, more evolved, like Chile, Uruguay, Argentina. They were using some tools of digital health, which is mostly telemedicine, but already before the COVID-19 pandemic. So they were more, I would say, uh, traveling in parallel with what the rest of the world was going to, or the first world was going uh, to Europe and the United States. They had a regulatory process. For beach operability, for instance, in Chile and, and Uruguay, they were creating digital hospitals in Chile. There was a national program called the Chilean Digital Hospital. And then the COVID pandemic came and it has disrupted every country. So some of the countries that had absolutely nothing now, at least they have some medicine. Some of the countries that had some have evolved to start developing startups on tech or wearable devices, remote patient monitoring. So I think there's a lot of misconceptions about Latin America. It's going in a different pace, but it's also going in the same direction. Are there any innovations that kind of stand out for you? I like, the, there's one company that I really like, it's called Betterfly, which my friend Christian is actually the CTO, and it's an insurance technology company. And I think that like them, there are several companies that are really doing amazing things that I know this other company, a wearable devices called TrainFest, that are doing also remote rehabilitation programs with wearable devices for uh, neuromuscular, interesting technology that could be potentially escalated to the world. One of the, the spaces where you put yourself on the map of digital health was Clubhouse last year. You found it and were running uh, very intensively two clubs. So MedNet, which aimed at medical professionals and the digital health channel, which at the moment has 6,400 members. So I want to hear a little bit of your reflection on Clubhouse on what you gained from that experience and what that gave you in terms of thinking uh, about how can medical education move forward? For me, I think it just escalated a lot of connections that were made, but also awareness of what how people think about digital health. And I think that was, uh, it was a very fast escalation of a lot of connections, a big network, and it just infused us with many ideas of what we can do and what is necessary and how we could approach that. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you thought. I think that, it, yes, I agree with you, Diana. It was such a, it was an accelerated program. It was a hype and then it went away. But that the moment of the hype, we did learn so much uh, from so many people. And it was, it was a collaborative space. People were willing to share the knowledge and willing to push each other towards participation, partnerships, collaborations. So. When that happened, for instance, I, this is the way I met the CMO of Medscape, that eventually we got inspired by the club, uh, the entire effect that it had in, in the medical population. And we said, we have to continue this one way or another, creating these spaces of panel discussions, people collaborating, bringing different people from different backgrounds and just put them together and see what comes from the education. Mm -hmm. So nothing's happening on Clubhouse anymore. 
I think we are not that active on Clubhouse right now. Probably there are people still active on Clubhouse. And I think this is also the purpose of many of those platforms is to bring people together and then infuse with ideas and then maybe continue and with those ideas and collaborate on them. And I think we are in the space that we got ourselves very much infused and we're taking those ideas to and bring them further. Mm -hmm. And are you still uh, in contact with the network that you created there? Because some people were more active than others. Some people really used that opportunity to position themselves in their field of expertise. Yes, definitely. We're in touch with a lot of people from there still. Mm -hmm. Actually, somebody completely not not medical, but I, I found the artist that made the front cover basically of my thesis book from small things or small things for me, it's a big thing. <laughs> to uh, bigger things and bigger ideas. And yeah, definitely we're in, in touch with Philip. Two of the members of the advisory board of Lepsi Health, which is our startup, mm -hmm. are actually people that we met in Clubhouse. So tell me a little bit more about uh, Lepsi Health. When did the idea start? What are you currently uh, focusing on? How is that developing? Yes, it, it was, it started because we were both thinking about wearable technology and what could we do different when with what we have right now? How could we actually use the technology that is right now validated, bring it to the digital world and enhance medicine without having to dis continuously disrupt it? Maybe like leveraging faster adoption, but at the same time, enhancing the, the way of performing digital medicine. And that's how Lapsy Health was born. It was born as a DTX idea for uh, pediatric asthmatic populations, which is not gone. It's part of the timeline of our development. Uh, we realized that the technology that we were investing in was actually bigger and it had way more applications than what we were initially thinking. So we have been very happy to be surrounded by great professionals. So what's the kind of the main problem that you would like to solve? we're going to have a digital biomarker uh, and I think this digital biomarker, it's going to help with diagnosing, but also alerting in many different phases of medicine. Mm -hmm. Okay. Any specific indication? I'm just wondering, especially from your side, Diana and the PhD that you just did was focused on Kawasaki disease, uh, which is a cardiovascular condition some, that sometimes occurs in children between half a year to, to five years old. So maybe you can share a little bit of a story of all the research that you did in the medical space and being active, working on a daily basis in the clinical practice and then um, combining all those experiences with impacts uh, and influences from the digital health space. Yeah, so as you said correctly, I did my PhD on Kawasaki disease, which is um, a vasculitis. What we see in pediatric, it, uh, it, it is a rare condition, but what we see is when there is a vasculitis, there is a preference for the coronary arteries. So those are the small uh, vessels that uh, bring oxygen to the heart. Uh, that they can develop aneurysms, so uh, dilation of those uh, arteries. And what happens is when there's a dilation, it's sort of balloon-shaped, the blood flows differently, and you can get a blood. So you have a blood clot in one of the, the arteries that is supplying your heart from oxygen, so these children can get a heart attack. Even though it's rare, it, it is a scary disease because young children, as you said, from six months old, can have a heart attack. And how far you can notice that they have signs and symptoms of heart attack. It's very difficult. 
So big part of my research was focusing on recognizing these aneurysms, these dilations, all imaging, and what was the best way to image and when to image these ones. But I also focus on the part of why do children get this disease and what is the best treatment for this disease because we know of it for 60 years across, but we still don't know exactly what goes wrong about the physiology. If you look at the physiology, we do not know exactly what goes wrong. So there's still a lot to learn. And I think because of the COVID pandemic, we already got a lot of nudges also in the different directions because we thought or we think that Kawasaki disease is triggered by a virus. And what we have seen during the COVID pandemic, we had an increase in patients with Kawasaki disease several weeks after they had COVID. So this was for the first time confirmation for us that we indeed cause hepatitis can be triggered by a virus because this was the first time that we did link it to an, a viral infection. This all has moved us also towards doing research, looking more and towards cytokines. I think everybody has read about it that in COVID we see a, a storm of cytokines and that that is why people can get so sick. So we see a similar thing actually in Kawasaki. So it is very interesting to look at frogbus to see what is actually happening and what are the similarities in adults and also in children. So that, I think, who, who, there's a big similarity because the COVID pandemic helped us to reshape our thoughts and to think differently. And I think that it did the same way in the digital health. Everything was already there, but it made us rethink about everything, what to step up our, our standard ways right? Because that's what we have been doing everything because this is what we are used to and to reshape our normal and to reevaluate the norm, what we think is normal. And I think that is what it did as, as well for the digital health. And I think this is very interesting because especially our combination, because I'm so much in the economical field, I see what is necessary. So I think the conversations that we are having are the conversations that are actually necessary. Because the conversation, I can see from the point of view from the patients and from the doctor's perspective, what is necessary and what would be helpful. And then Jonathan tells me, okay, but that's not too because of, uh, and he has the broader perspective also uh, in how to implement things and what is doable and feasible and what is not. And yeah, and I think that is the, these are the conversations that need to be held to take steps further into introducing all these new technologies into the academia. Jonathan, is there anything that you would like to add in terms of your collaboration? Nothing, but, <laughs> nothing, but you know, just one thing that she said, and I just wanted to like really emphasize on that, that we had everything. We just have to like now use it in a different way. And I think that's a key for what we can achieve in medicine, which is we have a lot already. We have so many different biomarkers and ways of catching vital signs. We have ECG, we have blood pressure. We have many doctors don't want to introduce another biomarker. So that's why there has been so much anti-adoption towards PPG. PPG is the, the way that you send light in a, in a vessel through the skin. It's been, it's a technology that used, that's been used by the Apple Watch or the Fitbit Watch to be able to, through algorithms, detect a heart rate or respiratory rate or even arrhythmias with some great level of accuracy. Um, but because of the, you're introducing a new biomarker that doctors don't know how to read, they always want to contrast to whatever they are seeing or you're telling them, my, my artificial intelligence is telling me that your patient has this. Okay, now I want to see it myself to supervise this. And then I don't know how to read PPG. No doctor knows how to read PPG because that's not how it works. 
So that immediately creates a, a defense in the, the implementation of PPG in the medical clean setting. So what we have been uh, working on just to make it really quick is we want to, instead of that rescue biomarker that is being already used in, in the clinical setting and then digitalize it and amplify it. You were looking at basically DTX for respiratory uh, health in the beginning, and that was the DTX. So I'm sure that you learned a lot about the DTX market in this time. So what kind of insights did you gain in terms of the differences between countries, the readiness of maybe investors to look at these solutions? What was your experience like from this perspective? I think that D there's no readiness for DTX yet in many places in the world. I think the United States has uh, has found a blue ocean for DTX, especially because there's a lot of employee-employer type of funnel DTXs that work. But in Europe, it's not that easy to just prescribe a DTX. You need a doctor to prescribe it or you need someone to tell you to use it. And there's still a lot of reluctancy to, I'm going to use this outside of the medication or instead of the medication. It, it, there's a lot of doubt still on DTX. In any other countries in the world, it's even a little bit more primitive than that. There's really not much talk about DTX. When I talk about DTX in, in Latin America, I have to explain from the beginning, but then give a lot of examples. But uh, I think it, it's a promising field that will definitely be used broadly by, by the population because it's necessary and it really lowers costs. And it, it also lowers a lot of physical costs. So this is about changing your, your habits and your costumes and your day-to-day -day life, enhancing your medication or chronic maintenance medication through changes in your behavior, which is amazing. This is what is how it should be. This is how medicine should be. Two things that I would like to add to that. One is that I think a lot of doctors are scared, and that was also initially my response, is that digital health or a DTX is going to cause more work because you're going to get more data, and you're going to get data of people that have nothing, and you will have to look at it. And I think that is one of the worries because... I think doctors in general don't have a lot of spare time and there are worries to be bothered by it, but I think if we have a good decade, will actually save you time. And I think that is the way that, that, that is still, that concept still needs to be more embedded and, and, and approved, I think, to doctors for them to be able to use DTX or be more happy to have DTX coming. So that I think is one of the things. And I think the other thing is also the, as Jonathan said, the DTX can help maybe i think chronically ill patients in the first phase and a lot of people that do not have chronic diseases they will maybe not see directly what the benefit of it is going to be and it will maybe come from the patients themselves that they're going to realize okay i have a chronic disease and this digital therapy that i have is going to alert me when i'm there i'm at risk of having an exacerbation of my disease and maybe today I'll have to stay home and not be outside in the sun because that will uh, add another factor for me to have an exacerbation. So it'll give you that feedback and it will prevent you from having the exacerbation, will prevent you from taking extra medication. And I think that is very valuable. And I think we, we have still a few steps to take.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. One, one thing I wanted to say, doctors, that there's some defense, you know, against technology. So as I had said at the beginning, she thought the they are worried about like, getting more and more data. Doctors are suffering of PTEHRB, which is post-traumatic EHR disorder. They are suffering the consequences of bad implementation of the EHR a long time ago, and they are still suffering of those consequences. It didn't, didn't make the practice of medicine more efficient. It didn't make it. Right. So what we have to battle every time we go and talk to a doctor is that they are, when you start talking about digital health, the first thing they tell you, I don't want to have more data and more screens to look at all the time. More you programs know, to log in. More programs to log in, less time to, to spend in my patient. That's like the, the first misconception that we have to tear down when we talk about digital health. It is patient-centric. It's also practitioner-centric. But yes, we're trying to achieve it. One uh, challenge that has recently been spotlighted in the digital health space was that when it comes to DTX, to really have them in clinical practice, you want a lot of evidence that they work. And at the moment, a lot of research is only done by the companies. So the mentality is still the same as with, say, uh, pharmaceuticals, where you want to have peer-reviewed studies, when you want to have a really huge validation, which is just not uh, quite there yet. I, I think still, I <laughs> just, just received my PhD title, Evidence-based medicine is extremely important. I don't think if you have a digital solution, it's going to be implemented very well or the likelihood is going to be way lower if you're not going to have it evidence-based and you're not going to put it through research. I think that is an aspect that we'll have to stay and we'll stay because if you buy as a chronically ill patient a digital therapy or you want to get it through your insurance, you need to know it's work. Uh, and not just have a placebo effect. So I don't think that will change very soon or will change at all. But I do think that there is hopefully a change that it won't be silos as with, we've seen with the pharmaceuticals that they do their own research. I hope we can incorporate it a little bit more and have, let's say, the academia collaborate to do this research to have digital health implemented because then I think... By having those collaborations, you also will deliver devices that actually the the hospital and academia wants to have for their patients. One interesting challenge that I see here is the fact that patients are generally happy to participate in clinical trials if they uh, deem that's going to help them. A lot of progress has been made on making clinical trials more accessible, making the search for the right patients for the right trial easier. We are talking about decentralized clinical trials. But at the same time, uh, when it comes to innovation, there's a lot of uh, inequity to these new innovations. So, for example, you can have a pool of patients that would be very interested in helping companies test their solutions. But maybe that one company that's developing something is based in Finland and they just won't enter a smaller new market or too many markets at the same time because of all the requirements. So there's a lot of potential there that I think still needs to be tackled to accelerate rate uh, innovation because that's what we want in the end to just uh, speed up the progress in healthcare. I agree with that. There's really a lot of unsolved issues with clinical trials that I think they are a little bit above chicken and egg feed because you have the ethics one side that really dictate very roughly what you have to do and that there are some level of innovations that are coming up to discuss them and to put them to test. But in 
in reality, what we are seeing is that, and I was working for a company that did respiratory analytics in, in Finland, and we had our clinical trial, you know, in design. And the first thing that I said was, okay, guys, how we have this in pigmented people? Because otherwise, how do we know that this is really working for everyone? So it's, um, and of course, in, in, that, in this case, it was done, but like, we see, for instance, what happened with the SpO2 and pigmented people during the corona crisis. We haven't even thought about it. And then suddenly we are seeing African-American people desaturating without getting any alarms because the SpO2 wouldn't be able to read accurately because of the pigmented skin, which we would have probably known if we would have done it correctly from the beginning. So I think that this is the this is a problem that is it's starting to resonate a little bit more in, in everything related to medical development, whether it's pharma, biotech, or medical technology, but we still don't know really how we're going to solve it out. I, I haven't really seen yet the solution that is going to deliver equitable groups of patients for a clinical trial. When I see that, it's going to be a great day, I think so. But I think that's why it's important to reach all these uh, different silos that we're having, because I think digital health is, is the solution, remote patient monitoring is a solution to have uh, better research and we can actually, yeah, way better research in different uh, populations. But at the, what Jonathan already said, ethical committees are, if I'm going to do research in my hospital, I have an ethical committee from my hospital that, that gives approval for my country, but it doesn't give approval for another country because then you have to go to that country to get approvals. Even though that remote patient monitoring is going to make it easier to include different populations, we also have to bridge all the disciplines and also change with that so it will be easier to actually do that and not be strapped and bound and not be able to do it even though we have all the the devices to monitor the patients. Is there anything uh, that you would like to highlight or add in terms of the acceleration of knowledge that you got in digital health because, you know, of the activities that you did in the last year with Clubhouse? Are there any thoughts that really stayed with you because of those experiences and exchange of knowledge? That's a good question. I have to think about that one. I think bridging the disciplines is very important and we cannot do this by ourselves. We really have to do this together because if the digital health, the business part is going to take a few steps forward, the academia has to take those steps as well. We have to go hand in hand and because otherwise we're not going to get there. And I think that's one of the most important things. And yeah, and I think the other important thing is what I said uh, earlier is that we are very comfortable in our own normal and I think we have to question our normal and to see if we cannot do better or different or different isn't, might be better and to step dare to step away from what is our comfort. I think that in education, we really need to, to work a lot towards not only educating doctors that are already graduated and are getting continuous medical education, but also doctors from the school of, of you know, medicine students, I think that there has to be initiatives to accelerate this learning. If we want them to be ready for the next couple of years that are coming with all this wave of technological improvements, um, I, I have seen several doctors in the space of digital health that are doing a tremendous job on educating their peers. As you can see Raphael Grossman from Netscape are doing an amazing job. And I think that we have to continue with that, with that route. And several things that we do are 
I think 99.9% of the things that we do are pro bono, basically just because we want this message to be delivered and to be expanded in globally without forgetting any parts of the world, because I am always very keen on let's remember Latin America. <laughs> let's do this for Latin America. So I'm always trying to, to push it. But I think that we indeed, where Diana said, collaboration is key. And, and we've seen it during the pandemic, how good countries respond whenever there is collaboration and how bad they do it whenever there's no, no real sensation of participation. So we all participate in healthcare, doctors, technologists, businesses, VCs, patients. So we, we have to learn to collaborate with each other. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. To browse through other episodes as well, we'll visit our website, facesofdigitalhealth.com, and to subscribe to the show to be notified about new episodes automatically. Coming up next are a few discussions about digitalization of healthcare in the Middle East. And the next episode will be focused on personalized medication prescribing recommendations and medication management based on patients' digital twins. Stay tuned!